God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome to today's edition of Family Discussion. My name is Marcos Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the incomparable Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's Friday. It's another day because, you know, we're taking this thing one day at a time. Oh, man. It's, you know, every time I turn around, there's more developments, more craziness. But this is an exciting day today. Yes, it is. We have ourselves a guest. We don't do this very often, but I'm very excited to have with us uh, a guest that um, has become a, a really important voice in a whole variety of different issues. And I think it has to do with the buffet of degrees in education <laughs> that he holds. Uh, we are joined today by Dr. Anthony Bradley. Dr. Bradley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're really excited that you are here. For those who, who don't know Dr. Bradley, uh, he is Professor of Religious Studies and Chair of the Program in Religious and Theological Studies at the King's College in New York, uh, also the Director for, of the Center for the Study of Human Flourishing at King's College and a Research Fellow at the Acton Institute. And so um, you wear a lot of hats um, and we are thrilled that you are willing to come and, and talk with us for a few minutes um, because this, this coronavirus thing has really um, impacted not just, the, not just our immediate surroundings, but really the whole world. And um, you have shared quite a bit the way that we need to address coronavirus that keeps the whole global economy in view. How are we really dealing with the poor? How are we thinking about class? All the different intersections of this. And so we're going to dive into a lot of that today. Uh, and so to start, I'm going to turn things over to Lisa. Lisa, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting that you kind of jump to the global because, you know, here's the thing. We tend to be very myopic and very U.S. centric um, here in our, you know, not just with the disease, but how we treat a whole variety of issues, you know, from politics to economics. Um, you know, we, we just kind of look within. And so it's been interesting to see the responses to this epidemic or actually it's a pandemic. Um, where you have this tension between we need to flatten the curve, which means we need to save as many lives as possible because what is worse than death, right? Um, and so there's this life preservation, um, you know, paradigm at play, but also there are economic realities when you shut everything down. And oh, by the way, economics is more than just money. It's you know, it's the, the exchange of goods and services. It's how a society functions. Like you have to have economics and there are human costs. 
to economics. So we really can't downplay the role um, of, that economics plays, and particularly when you start shutting things down and cutting it off. And so the ten, you know, and so now we have protests going on, and and you know, and really, if you if you look at the tenor of the protest, it's all about my check, my family, my you know, and that and and those things, of course, are important, but there are bigger ramifications for what happens when we shut everything down, and I'm particularly drawn to this article that CNN published on April 22nd entitled Global Famines of Biblical Proportions Will Be Caused by Coronavirus Pandemic. And in it, the UN has really kind of issued this call of, you know, what goes on in other countries. And specifically, the article says it will push an additional 130 million people to the brink of starvation. Um, the UN uh, Security Council, uh, David Beasley of the UN Security Council has said there is also a real danger that more people could potentially die from the economic impact of COVID-19 than from the virus itself. And um, so I was really interested, I know that Dr. Bradley, you had something to say about that when you posted this article on Twitter. Um, and specifically, you said, um, watch the documentary Poverty, Inc. This is a consequence of leaving developing countries enslaved for decades to Western NGOs, foreign aid, and food dumping rather than working on issues like the rule of law, property rights, entrepreneurship, and the corruption, et cetera. So we, I, we would love to hear you expound on that and talk to us more about how, you know, how we are addressing this pandemic here and, you know, what kind of global implications that has. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to make. And especially when you were talking about the role of economics and thinking about how myopic we are as Americans, we forget that, that, econo that economies ripple across the globe. And for those of us in the New York, D.C., Boston corridor, uh, you know, we provide much of the economic engine for the nation. But what happens is that it's really fascinating. American consumption is also much of the uh, birthplace of American philanthropy. And our capacity to give foreign aid to other countries is in part correlated with our consumption patterns. And so when consumption goes down, our capacity to be sort of quote unquote philanthropic with taxpayers dollars uh, to other countries also declines. And across the West, if you think about the monies taken from IMF and the World Bank, those monies are collected from governments that give portions of their, their tax revenues to this fund that are then redistributed to these nations. It's this uh, uh, sort of global poverty industry network of relationships. So when one of the pegs in there declines or when one peg's removed, the entire system is threatened to collapse. And what we're seeing right now is that the capacity for Western nations to give aid is compromised because Western nations are not able to consume 
as they used to consume. And so those Western nations are unable to extract taxes to contribute to these funds to be redistributed. So developing nations that have really been overly dependent on this aid for too long, when we think beyond stage one, the ripple effect is going to hit them like a tidal wave because the resources that they have become dependent on uh, to sustain life in those countries has been overly dependent on, on Western revenue. Now, why is this the case? Well, uh, in the infinite wisdom of some uh, 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 Western international uh, affairs uh, personnel, they decided that one of the ways to rebuild developing countries is through aid. That we, will, that we will give them enough aid and then that aid will allow them to grow and expand their economies. And that's easier to do uh, than working on infrastructure when working on those platforms that actually do build nations over time. And those include giving people their human rights, uh, human dignity, uh, property rights, giving people freedom to hustle, right? To kind of exchange goods and services over time giving people capacity to save money, to reinvest those dollars, uh, fighting corruption, and those sorts of things. And those are, those are longer term. They're not nearly as flashy. You can't raise money off on the rule of law and property rights. And th but those are the things that nations who were wealthy did over time. And we have failed to see that perhaps those are the exact same things that we need to work on in order for developing countries to, to, to move from poverty to sustainable, thriving GDPs. And the coronavirus pandemic is exposing the failure of that system. Yes. Now, when you, when you talk about this, it sounds very similar to some of the language of nation building. Um, so I think back to after the Afghanistan invasion, there was a whole lot of pushback and saying, we're there too long, we're doing nation building, we don't need to be doing that. So can you, can you walk through, is, is it that Americans don't have the stomach to do the long-term work? Is it because we want the instant gratification of, oh, look, we did something nice for another country? Or, or is what you're talking about different than what that kind of, you know, liberals were constantly hammering on about how this was a, a quagmire that we'd gotten ourselves into in Afghanistan. So, so what's the difference between that and what you're talking about? Or, or is that really where we have to go if we're going to have long-term aid? Yeah, it's, it's a variation on, the, on that theme. I mean, these, these programs developed after World War II. And what happened, right? Europe, Western Europe was a disaster. And the West got together to rebuild Western countries, right? The West got together to rebuild London. We got together to rebuild Germany. And so there began in the West this idea that that model of nation building via aid was a fast track to getting nations on their feet. The problem is that those, that, 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 that platform works for countries that were already developed to get them back on their feet. Uh, those, that model is not necessarily helpful for countries that were really moving from subsistence to sustainability, right? And and when we think about the American experience, this was a basically, you know, second world, third world country up until about World War One, right? We, we weren't this massively wealthy superpower until the World War started. Uh, 
up in, up until that point, we weren't much different than than, for example, what you might see uh, in in uh, Colombia right now, for example. We're very similar to where Colombia is today, kind of kind of uh, on the way to being. Uh, a first world country. And so it was really, it's been really recent that we thought about this idea that we could collect money from, from, participating, from participating countries in a fund and, as you noted, fast track their development. And the, the fallacy is that you could fast track development without establishing the, the structures that sustain that development in the, in the long run. And, and without those structures, the development uh, actually won't take hold. And that's why we keep spending billions and billions of dollars uh, giving aid to these countries. And there has, be, there has been very little improvement, except for those who control who, who, the, the, the purse strings and those who control uh, how those monies are distributed. They're doing great. They have nice houses. They have very nice cars. They live in palaces. They have servants. Uh, they're doing wonderful. But the people on the ground are still suffering. And they have been for 10, 30, 40, 50 years, even though we keep giving more money. So that current system's not working. We really need to get some folks to help them think about those sorts of, of structures and systems and frameworks that really originate from how God made people, if you think about it, that allow societies to thrive. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, you know, in listening to the, you know, what you just said and, and what Marco said is that, of course, we want to see the world through a Christian lens. And the Christian lens is not just, I mean, yes, we guard the sixth commandment. Um, and we know from the Westminster Larger Catechism, we uh, went over that in an earlier episode, that there is, there's this whole gamut to life preservation. But in terms of, you know, looking at how God created the world, um, that, you know, the creation mandate did not go away with Genesis 3. And, you know, how all of these components work together is very much should be a Christian concern and to see that you know we we can advocate and do our part um, you know to see that these systems work you know that they're well oiled together um, and so I think that that perhaps maybe that's something that we miss in the debate here in terms of you know, well, we need to, you know, I hear one response, we need to shut everything down. And then the other response is, no, we're killing our economy. That also has, there's also a human cost to that. Um, so it would, you know, it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, I would love to know, like, how this global perspective should cause us to think here, you know, in terms of that debate. That's a tough question because we're having to juggle so many different interests, right? We are rightly juggling the interests of human life. Uh, we are rightly juggling the interests of, of uh, the way our economy is functioning. And I, I think the bottom line is we just don't have good information to make wise decisions. 
And that's why, you know, you have, we have 50 different states and 50 different approaches. We have a president that has an agenda. Governor Cuomo here in the state of New York has his own agenda. And it's built on a lot of speculation. It's built on a lot of modeling. It's, and it's built on impartial data. And, and, and that's part of the challenge is that we're trying to make good decisions. So think about this. We're trying to make decisions for 330 million people based on truncated, incomplete, in, in some respects, um, uh, uh, illusionary and, and conjectured data, impartial data for 330 million people, right? And so that was already at the outset gonna be a mess. When you're using, in, when you're using incomplete uh, conjecture to make a massive network of decisions for 330 million people living in 50 states and then, and then asking uh, each, each governor, which, which each state has their own particular interests involved in terms of getting federal money to make the best decision for their own people. Right. right. So that was that was going to be a disaster at the at the outset. And if it now, you know, hindsight is going to be 2020, of course. Right. The data is catching up with the decision. So in the state of New York, for example, we're, we're seeing that the projections were a bit exaggerated. Thankfully, right. There has it hasn't been quite as bad as, as, they, as they thought. When you look in in the boroughs, the city of New York, uh, in the Bronx, for example, that was the hardest hit. I just saw the data today. About ninety percent of those who were who died had a pre-existing condition. That median age was sixty-three. Those pre-existing mm. conditions included uh, diabetes, uh, hypertension, uh, respiratory issues. The leading malady was hypertension, hmm. right? So high blood pressure uh, in those communities that people, they were already subject to that really put them at, at, at major risk. And so the question is now, well, should we have simply shut life down for the most vulnerable populations and allowed everyone else to very wisely go about participating in the economy. And again, again, you know, hindsight 2020, it's hard to make good policy when we're relying on China to give us information. And China is a nation that categorically does nothing but lie all the time. So we, like fools, we're relying on, on data from China, and every week we get now messages and news stories that the Chinese were lying the whole time. Boris uh, Johnson over in the UK is all upset. He's infuriated, right, because China gave them the wrong information. And I'm thinking, why y'all listening to China in the first place? You should have assumed that they were lying. So what, what do you expect the president to do? I mean, what do you expect these governors to do when they're juggling all these interests with bad information? Right. And irony upon ironies and something that your governor brings up every day. I, well, I listen to his daily press briefings, by the way, um, with the exception of, you know, a few statements I don't like. I pretty much really enjoy. I actually find them a, a bit more informative um, than what comes from the national level. Um, but he has brought up this point repeatedly that 
in the in a cruel twist of irony the um, the equipment that is needed to address the pandemic all comes from china which is yeah we we, we really need to do something about that and and some of that equipment has been proven to be de defective the state of illinois wasted 176 million dollars on some masks that they bought from China that they can't even use. Whoa. Right? It's that bad. Wow. Well, and, and you know, it, this is one of those things where we're, you know, as you're saying, we're in the middle of it, trying to make decisions based on incomplete information, unreliable sources, all of that. So, so some of this is learning now what we need to have in place before the next one comes, right? Because there's conversation about wave two coming at the, at the start of flu season, which is going to make things really, really a challenge. Yeah. Um, but, but even thinking culturally and socially, because a, a lot of your work is cultural, social commentary and, and um, investigation. I'm curious, you know, you bring up things like hypertension and stuff like that. And, and it's, you know, I immediately thought, oh, well, there's some stressed people in New York. That doesn't surprise me that hypertension is high in New York. But it, but it begs the question, are we culturally putting ourselves in a place where we're susceptible to these kinds of things because of the way we live our lives? If, if, if literal stress level is one of the main things that's killing us when COVID hits us, maybe we need to not just think about being prepared for the virus, but also changing some social things to bring our stress levels down. Um, you know, dropping one, um, I think it was one particle point in pollution would have saved 248 people up to this point because it's a, it's a respiratory issue. So even high concentrations of, of pollution, according to a, state, a study out of Harvard. So there's all these different factors. I wonder, how do we communicate at the church a more holistic way of approaching these issues and a more holistic way of, of life? Uh, we focus really well on the soul, but how do we talk about holistic wellness? That's a, that's a fantastic question. I think we have to reintroduce people to something called the Old Testament. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a helpful, now, a helpful place. Now, I'm, I'm, telling you right, I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, if you didn't think Leviticus made any sense, I bet you it does now. <laughs> Facts on that. Absolutely. Right? If you didn't think those holiness codes made any difference in life, if you thought they were just random uh, dressing, right? You thought they were just things on the side to get to the real point about God's sovereignty. I bet you you think differently right now. We're all living outside the camp today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even right? the article, even the article written from a secular perspective indicates famines of biblical proportion so right there <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you know yeah, the reference yeah, is the bible yeah now now the reason i, I in part want to say that we need to reintroduce people to, to the old testament is that the pentateuch right actually addresses the the political economic social psychological emotional spiritual side of human life right if you read the pentateuch it hits everything okay and so when we think about when we think about some of those issues, and this also is going to uh, really really uh, stir up, I think, good conversations about environmental justice, uh, uh, for example, right? So if, if you wanted to if you wanted to sort of go down the, the the list of maladies really quickly here, I mean, if you think about hypertension, 
I mean, yes, it, it most certainly it most certainly is a result of high levels of anxiety. And if you think about what sorts of reasons are the people tend to have high levels of stress and anxiety, right? Uh, it's it's a myriad of things. Uh, financial stress, family issues, arguments with your cousin, things like that. But, but there's also the behavioral side of hypertension, right? Uh, fried fish, salt, yeah. chicken, totones, mofongo. I can go down the list, right? Chicharron. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's a, there's a range of things that can lead to hypertension. And when my doctor told me that, hey, you, your, your blood pressure is high, uh, among the recommendations for reducing stress included drinking more water and, de and reducing the level of sodium and exercising, right? Things like that. When you look at the prevalence of type 2 diabetes, right? For African-Americans, we don't have the gene. A lot of people do not know this. We genetically do not have the gene that allows us to break down complex sugars and carbohydrates, right? We, we genetically don't do that. We, wow. we can't do that, right? So what does that mean? It means that we cannot eat high carbohydrate foods hmm. and a lot of sugar the same way Anglos can. We just cannot do it because our bodies genetically don't have the capacity to do that, right? And so guess what happens? We get, we get insulin spikes, right? From consuming breads, desserts, lots of sugars, it makes us more susceptible to these things. Uh, now, what's interesting, if you think about, if you think about the respiratory issues and, and, and in particular asthma, which makes people really vulnerable to COVID-19, is that what they're finding, you see this in New York, is that communities, and especially in children, this is why it's so tragic, communities where they built major transportation depots are the communities where you see some of the highest rates of asthmatics bus depots. You also see these in communities that are adjacent to, uh, to factories that release a lot of toxins in the air, right? Those sorts of respiratory issues are, are, are related to proximity to those communities. Now think about what happened. It was in the mind of some city planner who graduated probably from some Ivy League school to build a bus depot across the street from a housing project because those people need transportation. And as the fumes get released, the children in that neighborhood get asthma. Now the person who made that decision doesn't live in that neighborhood. He lives in New Jersey. Right. Right. Now, when you add all of these factors together, these sort of comorbidities that we talk about, it really does put particular communities uh, under a lot of stress. When you look at the map of New York city, I saw this a couple weeks ago, and you and you saw the they 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 mapped out the rates of infection of COVID nineteen. It was it was clearly you could just see it so clearly that it was by class. Yeah, right. If you looked at Manhattan, a hundred and ten street on both hundred twenty streets on both sides down down 
Upper West Side, Upper East Side, down below Central uh, Park, right, where all the wealthy people live mm -hmm. with a $5,000 month apartments with doormen, okay? Very little occurrence. Deep in Brooklyn, deep in Queens, deep in the Bronx, people dying like flies, I mean, you know, dro dropping like flies. Right. And those are the those are the sorts of the those are the sorts of issues that the Pentateuch introduces us to, to thinking about the the holistic experience of being human, living in God's world, because as as Lisa said earlier, economics is 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 has much more to do with how we live our lives in community. And I think the the Pentateuch gives us a great orientation about the, the types of things that we should be thinking about, including being clean mm. Mm. well and and you know the class point up and i think that's it's questions around you know we have seen the percentages for example of how many more african americans have died um from this often that conversation is divorced from the class conversation Right. I mean, it's it, it begs the question, you know, what can we do going forward yeah. to ensure that lower classes, um, those minorities who are overwhelmingly the ones who populate those areas? Mm -hmm. How are we making sure that we are caring for them going forward? Like, what are some of those things that we need to put in place that aren't necessarily quick fixes, but are full blown structural changes that will will improve things? And I'm, I'm sorry, before you answer yep. that, I want to say that to me, that raises such a very challenging um, solution, right? Because as Anthony said a while ago, that, you know, isolating the vulnerable population. Well, once you start talking about isolating those that have a higher incidence of hypertension and diabetes, now we're getting into race and class issues. And oh, by the way, would that not strike up a firestorm but if that's you know in terms of balancing the tensions that's you know that's something that we have to deal with i think no that's a that's a fantastic that's a fantastic question and, and, and issue I, I think what 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 a lot of evangelicals, I'll, I'll, I'll say that what what a, a lot of evangelicals may be unaware of about the history of, of churches in the, for example, in the black tradition, I can't speak to churches in the Latino tradition as much, but in the, in the black church tradition, caring for the whole person was a part of what church was. Mm -hmm. And if you currently are involved in a lot of black church contexts across the country, what, what, do you, what do you see now? is the expansion of different kinds of ministries specifically to deal with these issues. For example, I grew up in Atlanta and uh, there's, a, there's a great church in uh, Atlanta called the, the House of Hope. It was uh, formerly a Baptist, formerly a Greater Traveler's Rest Baptist Church. The pastor is E. Dewey Smith. If you look at what that church has expanded over the years and done, these are the types of new ministries that that the church has so instead of building a new gym for for high school kids to play around and be babysat uh, they for example are doing things like a health ministry they're teaching people about 
about diet, about exercise. They're giving them strategies to reduce their stress. They're giving them strategies to work on their finances. They're giving them strategies to empower them economically, right? And these are the sorts of things that, that are part of normal, normal aspects of black church life because those are the sorts of things you see in, in, in the Old Testament. Those, that's what you're going to see in the Pentateuch. Not so much in the Pauline epistles, but in the Pentateuch, you're going to get a lot of uh, financial literacy. The book of Proverbs, full of financial literacy, right? And so churches can really help people re-engage what the Bible says about what it means to be made in God's image and thrive economically and, and psychologically, right, in terms of health. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of the reason that we, we, sort, of, we sort of have this, we're kind of allergic to this talk is that we don't want people to think that we're the prosperity gospel. Or the social gospel. Or the social gospel, right? And so, and so we have let them hijack Mm. Uh, so much good that churches can be doing for their own members because we don't want people to think that we're slipping or, or slouching over toward social justice uh, distractions or the prosperity gospel by talking about personal finance and diet and exercise. At, at, great, at, at the House of Hope in Atlanta, one of the things we're doing in this, in this COVID-19 uh, shelter in place is as a church every morning at 8.30, they have a church exercise hour, hmm. right? Now, if, if reducing hypertension and addressing uh, type 2 diabetes is also related to behavioral things that we, that we do, I think part of the church's role is to teach people how to be wise about caring for the bodies that God gave them and to manage the issues that God has put before them. Well, and I think one of the, one of the reasons that this has happened is because we have um, divorced the health of the soul from the health of the body. We've uh, almost become platonic in our view of um, who we've been created to be. Um, and we see that, right? It's every answer to every question, even something like hypertension would be, we'll just preach the gospel um, as if that's going to magically bring your blood pressure down, right? And, um, and I, I see, you know, we started at the global, we brought it kind of back to the local, kind of as we move towards the finish line today, I'm wondering if we can move back towards the global, back out of the church again, into the, the question of global missions. As we're sending, as we're doing this, we have so focused our mission work on, um, just share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, and have ignored in a lot of respects, maybe because we're afraid of the liberal project of the early 20th century, we've ignored the social um, implications of the gospel in mission work. And I wonder if COVID-19 is going to have to force us to reconsider that. Like, what do you see the, the kind of the state of global work in light yeah. of the pandemic? Right. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a that's a very pressing point. What it's really going to reintroduce us to is the fact that God cares about the whole person. Right. And why is that? Because God cares about his creation. He cares about his world. And that world includes real embodied people. It includes bodies as well, not just souls. And so if we really want to 
to minister and care and do missions for the whole person, right? Body, mind, uh, body, mind, spirit, that we have to care about all of the spaces in which human persons inhabit if we want to bring the kingdom to the whole person. And there are multiple ways in which you can put people in positions where they're going to beg the question, why are you doing this to me? Why are you, why are you coming and helping us like this beyond simply delivering an evangelistic message? And I think when we expand the range, right, so it's, it's sort of preach the gospel plus give people food, plus help them build their families, plus help them build their infrastructures. One of the things that we've seen over history, and this is people may not be aware of this, but if you, if you track in the West economic development, what tailed that was, was church growth. Mm. So in the West, after the Reformation, Okay, as societies, economies, and GDPs grew, guess what else grew? Churches grew. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so there's a relationship between human flourishing and thriving persons holistically and the context in which, in which churches can really grow and, and the gospel itself. And the message of loving God and loving neighbor can drill down and do some, some really extraordinary things again, again, as we see the Old Testament. Right. So, so churches in terms of missions, how, how, do we, how do we use the capital that we have in this country, both in terms of financial capital and human capital, to invest in those communities that need development so that, so that the whole person can thrive? So we need to send, this is why I like the Ministry of, of International Justice Mission, for example, because they're sending U.S. attorneys over to countries to help attorneys on the ground, free people from sex, uh, sex slavery, to, to give them property rights and things like that. That's an example of human capital that we're sending for missions, right? We also are doing some food programs. We need to fight corruption, lots of things. So I think we should expand the imagination for, for the ways in which Christians can be sent into mission and allow people to recognize that whatever your vocation is, whether you are a construction worker, a second grade teacher, or a pastor, you all have a role to play in, in bringing the kingdom to a community that needs to hear the fact that the resurrection happens. Right? And uh, you don't have to be a professional missionary to do that. Uh, you could be good at your craft and bring that capital and God's gifting of you to those contexts holistically across the board. Amen. 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 Well, I think that's a great place for us to, to leave this today. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today. It was a joy to have you with us. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for very having me. Much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, have, have, I'm happy to come on anytime. Great. Well, then we will have you back. There's lots of time. We're gonna, <laughs> That's an open invitation. That That's how you, I you interpret that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, once all this dies down, we can get into some really fun, like polity type conversations down the road, something like that, too. So, well, there's a whole lot of different places we can go. Uh, but for today, I think that is all the time that we have. We want to thank you for listening. We want to thank you for being a part of today's episode of Family And we will see you next week. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's family discussion. 
If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. <laughs>